invite you to turn in your Bibles right now to Romans 12 and turn to verse 9. And we're going to be reading verses 9 through 13. And actually, the whole, it's a wonderful passage. Uh, I'm going to read the whole thing, but our focus is just going to be on one, one little phrase there uh, to start us on our, our new series and to start us in the message this morning. Uh, Romans 12, beginning at verse 9, this is God's holy and infallible word. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. That is God's word for us this morning. Let me give you um, a little bit of uh, the background to the idea behind this sermon series that I, I kind of, I believe God led me to just the last uh, month or two of thinking and, and planning for what could be our focus for the mornings in the fall here. A recent Christian Post article begins like this, and I'm going to quote it. Few people would argue that church attendance in America is declining. Our own research indicates that the majority of churches in our country are not growing. And then the author, who's a guy by the name of Tom Rayner, I, I think he's written a lot of stuff for them. He goes on to focus on what he thinks is the number one reason for this trend. And that is members, church members, even committed church members, attending worship, attending church less frequently than they used to. There's actually a study um, in our own denomination uh, that was recently done that shows while uh, a number of years ago, twice a Sunday was the norm for church attendance, now the norm is closer to twice a month. So that's from eight worship services and attendance to a closer average for committed church members is is about twice a month. Now, you, you could say a lot of things about that trend, talk about various reasons, but overall, it seems to be a sign of lessening commitment to the church. Rayner, in his article, doesn't just talk about the attendance of Christians at church, but also how there are less Christians in our country than in years past, it seems to be. And there's certainly a larger percentage of people who say they don't believe at all. Uh, a Pew Research Center poll from late last year, I'm sure I quoted it once before, it shows that the numbers of, number of nuns has risen. And these are the people who, when they're asked in a survey about the religious affiliation, fill in the nun box. The nuns were in these polls 8% of the population in 1990, 15% in 2007, and it jumped to 20% in 2012. So that's a, that's a big jump for just five years. And you add to this picture that we're getting, churches in our country where there are large numbers, what we call megachurches, which are generally considered churches of several thousand or more, 
the statistics show that most of those have as big a back door as they do a front door. There may be an attraction of people, but there seem to be just as many slipping out the back door as are coming in the front door. So whether you want to look at the facts about church attendance by believers today or look at these big cultural shifts that seem to be going, we see reasons as believers to be concerned, wouldn't you say? And I think a lot of the statistics uh, show what our general sense is um, as Christians. I think they, they confirm that. What to do? Complain? Whine? Give up? Throw in the towel? I'm not, I'm not sharing these trends to do any of those things. I'm not sharing them uh, to make you depressed, though it's a little depressing. I'm saying this so that we would wake up, so that we're aware, so that we would act. And I believe the very, very best thing that we can do as believers today is get back to basics, back to our foundations, hence that title for this series, that old time was get back to the historic Christian faith and get back to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and make sure that we're close to him and have a vital relationship with him. I believe in our generation, in our day, God is calling us, each one of us, to renew our commitment to him and to his people. I believe we need to say as much as ever with Joshua long ago, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And in the midst of troubling times, we've got to say, not on my watch. We will not be among these statistics of lessening commitment to the Lord and his people. To steal our local sports lingo, what comes to mind is this, bear down, people of God, bear down. And in an effort to do that, we're going to look over the course of a few Sundays at some spiritual practices that have served God's people throughout the ages and that can help us live committed lives today. And today, the focus is prayer. Our text in Romans is a place in this book where Paul is telling Christians how to live. If you look at the broad outline of this book, he begins by telling us that we and all people are sinners, that we're lost on our own, and then he moves on and he brings us to the grace of God in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and his atoning sacrifice, and he tells us that the grace of God is ours through faith in Jesus. And then in these last chapters, in spots like here in chapter 12, he gets to what the grand reality of salvation in Jesus means for our day-to-day lives. All right? How are we called to live for the Lord? We could come up in this text alone. I've actually used this text two or three times uh, for a wedding ceremony, and some of you have heard that message. 
But in these verses, we could come up with at least 10 different callings for us as believers day by day. This morning, our focus is on one of those, and that is the call to be faithful in prayer. If you do a little looking at the church in the past, giants of the faith invariably were known as people of prayer. I think you know that, but let me give you a couple of examples. Martin Luther, the German reformer, said, I have so much to do in a day, I've got to pray three hours every morning, which is kind of the opposite of how we look at it, right? That's why it's so striking. We think we've got so much to do, we don't have time to pray. We've got to do the stuff we need to do. I've got so much to do that I have to pray three hours every morning. George Whitfield, the great American evangelist, during the time of the First Great Awakening, said, Whole days and weeks have I spent prostrate on the ground in silent or vocal prayer. George Muller was a great missionary, a great supporter of orphanages. We are too as a church. When asked how much time he spent in prayer, he said, hours every day. And then he went out and said, but I live in the spirit of prayer. I, I pray as I walk. I pray when I lie down, when I rise. There's no question that prayer was a priority for these men and so many other examples of people of faith in history. I think of us today, prayer is last resort, and I feel like instead of making a priority of prayer, it can very quickly, very easily become last resort for us. Think about it. That's how it can go for us. Think, think of a, a problem or an issue you, you've got. Uh, we, we work at that problem. We worry a lot about that problem. And then if we don't get the results through our work and worry, then we think, well, that didn't work. We tried everything else. I guess I can still pray. It's a last resort. It's a Hail Mary pass. It's a last-ditch effort. Instead, think of prayer talking with our Heavenly Father as a first resort, as it was to so many committed Christians in the past. Think about prayer as first resort when we think of our country as believers. What if instead of posting that harsh political comment on Facebook, a Christian instead would stop. Maybe not post it at all. Instead, stop and pray for our president and pray for our government officials. I'm not saying we shouldn't have political views. I'm not saying we shouldn't express our political views. I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in the political dialogue. But we must be first praying. When critique is often our first resort. Prayer is the Christian's first resort. Sidlow Baxter wrote this, Men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our prayers. Does this sound like today to you? Men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they're helpless against our prayers. And that is true today as ever when we think about the enemies of the church. 
They're helpless against our prayers. Prayer must be our first resort when we think about the church, too. I think of all of the work we do. We must do it. It's good. In fact, I'm a little biased because I'm a pastor, but I would say your church needs volunteers and people committed to working and giving more than any other organization you know. Your church needs those things. But the very best thing, the highest thing we can do for our church is to pray for our church. And that goes for all of us. That goes for me as pastor. And and trust me, I don't always do a good job of that. But I'm trying and I'm hopefully growing and doing better and making prayer the first resort, the first work that I do as pastor. And prayer must be our first resort when we think of our own spiritual walk day by day and our loved ones. First resort. We need prayer. We need, we need to re-energize. We re- need to refocus. Life is crazy. Life is busy. Life is stressful. We need the stillness with our God. Find the times throughout the day for that to work. And I know you're busy. We're all running crazy. Sarah and I are too. I get that. But think about it. There's got to be a time. Maybe it's early in the morning. A lot of people like that time. Late at night. In the car, on the train. You can listen to 90.1, 94.3 or create your own mix of worship songs. It's really easy to do. Or just be silent. When it comes to your challenges, your children, your checkbook, let's make prayer the first resort. Not the final one, not the last. What I want to do for for the rest of our time, sort of the the second half of the message, is, is look at what prayer as first resort practically can look like. The great thing about prayer is we're not left to our own devices to figure it out. The Bible tells us, Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer, and what that prayer does, it's a wonderful prayer to just pray, but the church has always seen that especially as a tremendous outline to guide us in our own prayers. So it hits all of the various topics, some important things to include in our prayer, The Lord's Prayer, I'm going to show today how I believe it shows seven ways for us to be proactive in our prayers. Seven ways to be proactive in prayer. One, relish the position you have. Our Father who art in heaven, that's how the prayer begins. God is our Father, we are his little children. A father loves his children dearly. Some of the most precious moments in my life have been just just snuggling with my four girls. An arm around them as we watch a TV show together. And when my girls were small babies, and none of them are small enough to do this, it would be ridiculous with the older ones, even Adriana, 
is too little for the, too big for this. But when they're small babies, you know how you can babies can lie tummy down on your chest on the couch and they fall asleep. That's so precious. It's so precious. And think so. You think about it from a parent's perspective. For a child, for a child, and I can vaguely remember those secure times when I was little with my mom and dad. But for a child, there's nothing more secure and comforting than being in their mom or dad's protective and loving embrace. Prayer begins by understanding that secure position we have as children of the Heavenly Father. It's a rock solid relationship initiated by the Father, bought with the blood of Jesus, sealed with the Spirit. Nothing can separate us from his love, as we're going to hear more tonight in the message. And you and I are free to bask and rest in that secure, loving relationship. In our quiet times, as we call out to him, as we're walking along with whatever's on your heart. Secondly, relish the position you have first. Second, include praise when you pray. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed, that's an old way of saying praise him. Make his, make it mean, hallow means to make holy. We're to make his name holy. The name of God in Scripture refers to God himself. And so what this means is we're called to praise God, to lift him up, to glorify him. You don't have to do it this way, but an excellent way to start out your prayer is to begin, like the Lord's Prayer, with praising God for who he is. And then you think of all his names in Scripture. And that gets at all the aspects of who he is. Third, seek God's purpose. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The purpose of our prayer should be for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done. Jesus prayed to the Father in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. So prayer is not about coming to God with our personal agendas. It's more about seeking his agenda for our lives. And though, of course, we may pray and we should pray for our needs, we put them at the service of his plan, of his greater mission, his kingdom, his will. His ways are greater than our ways. His plan is always better than any plan we might have. At a meeting of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, uh, Bobby Richardson, a former New York Yankee second baseman, he offered this classic prayer. Dear God, your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Amen. If only we could live like that. Pray it. Pray that prayer. And you will more and more live it. I'm convinced of it. Fourth, ask for pardon. Forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors. 
we enter into prayer, enter into a talk, communication with the Father, knowing that we're broken, that we're fallen, that we're sinful people, that we desperately need the forgiveness of God. And in prayer, we confess our sins before him. And then the Bible says he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We can come to God broken, stained, feeling dirty, and leave cleansed and whole because of the blood of Jesus Christ which pardons us. And likewise, we're called to forgive others as God forgives us. Five, bring physical needs before God. Give us today our daily bread refers to food and drink and all of our physical needs. We shouldn't be afraid to pray for these things. They are not less holy. They are not, you know, we think they're spiritual stuff and unspiritual stuff. They're not, those are not unspiritual matters because Jesus highlights them in the prayer that he gave us. Now, sometimes our prayers can become all about that, sort of praying only when we have a need, only when we're in trouble, when we need stuff. It shouldn't be only that. But Jesus does tell us to pray for what we need. Go to him with it. There's a story I want to share with you. While crossing the Atlantic many years ago on an ocean liner, F.B. Meyer, famous preacher, he was asked to address the first-class passengers. And at the captain's request, he talked on the topic, answered prayer. That was the topic, answered prayer. An agnostic who was present at the service was asked by his friends, what do you think of Dr. Meyer's sermon? He said, I don't believe a word of it. Agnostic, that's part of the nuns that I talked about earlier. They, they, they say, I, I don't know if there's a God. I have no idea. He said, I, I didn't believe a word of that sermon. And that afternoon... Meyer went to speak to the steerage passengers, and many of the listeners at his morning address went along, including the agnostic, and he claimed that he just wanted to hear what the babbler had to say, this Christian guy talking about prayer. Before starting the service, this agnostic fellow put two oranges in his pocket, and on the way, he passed an elderly woman sitting in her deck chair fast asleep. Her hands were open. Sort of in the spirit of fun, the agnostic put the two oranges in her outstretched palms. After the meeting, he saw the old lady happily eating one of those pieces of fruit. With a a smile, he remarked, you seem to be enjoying that orange. He said, yes, sir. My father is very good to me. Your father, he said cynically, surely your father still can't be alive. Praise God, she replied, he is very much alive. Well, what do you mean, said the agnostic. She explained, well, I'll tell you, sir, I've been seasick for days. I was asking God somehow to send me an orange. I suppose I fell asleep while I was praying, and when I woke up, I found he not only sent me an orange, he gave me two oranges. This agnostic was speechless, and later on, he was, in fact, converted to Christ convinced of the power of prayer, and we can be assured that when we pray, 
for our needs, God will answer. He does it in his way, in his time, but he answers. He hears and he answers. Ask for protection also, number six. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need to be reminded that there are spiritual forces of darkness in this world, and we need the Lord to protect us. And you know, especially when we're living for the Lord, especially when we're making strides in our Christian walk, if you start making progress in your prayer life, watch out. Satan will attack you. He will tempt. He will try to thwart you. And by the way, that's the same thing that will happen when a church is doing well by God's grace. Satan will not leave a church like that be. He'll not leave a church like that alone. He'll look to make inroads. He'll look to cause trouble. So recognizing that we have a very real enemy, we pray for protection from the evil one. Finally, we invoke God's power for living. The prayer closes similar to how it began by acknowledging God's greatness. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. He's sovereign. He's in control. And in Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, the all-powerful one gives us all we would ever need for this life and the next. I want you to take a look at what I have up here next. And it's Lord's Day Lesson 45 in our Heidelberg Catechism. That's the introduction to prayer and the Lord's Prayer. There are three questions and answers, and I I just want us to be reminded of what this biblical summary of prayer says. So let me read the question. You do the answer on the first one. Why do Christians need to pray? And then I'll read this one, okay? What is the kind of prayer that pleases God and that he listens to? And listen. First, we must pray from the heart to no other than the one true God revealed to us in his word, asking for everything God has commanded us to ask for. Second, we must fully recognize our need and misery so that we humble ourselves in God's majestic presence. Third, we must rest on this unshakable foundation, even though we do not deserve it, God will surely listen to our prayer because of Christ our Lord. That is what God promised us in his word. And then you do the answer for this this one. What did God command us to pray for? Not too bad what our spiritual forefathers were, were led to share with us about prayer, its importance, all that the Bible tells us about it. Today in the Word tells of early African converts to Christianity who were very earnest and very regular and devoted in their private devotions. And the way it went in this particular spot, each one had a separate spot in the thicket 
where he'd pour out his heart to God. And over time, the paths to these places in the thicket would become well-worn. And as a result, if one of these believers began to neglect prayer, it became obvious to the others, and they'd kindly remind the negligent one, brother, the grass grows on your path. And I ask you today, brother, sister, children, young couples, grandparents, is the grass growing on your path or is it flattened? Walk that path again. May it be well-worn for all of us. Speak oft with thy Lord. A recommitment to the Lord and his ways and his church, it's got to start with prayer. Any revival or renewal that's going to happen in your life or in your family's life or in your church or in our nation, it's got to start with prayer. And prayer as first resort, not last, has got to start with you and me making a stand today.